Welcome to the Green Lectionary Podcast, a production of Creation Justice Ministries. The Green Lectionary is a conversation on scripture through the lens of creation justice. My name is Derek Weston, and today we will be looking at a text for the third Sunday in Lent. For this episode, I'm joined by Jerusha Neal, Professor of Homiletics at Duke Divinity School, and Doug Kaufman, Executive Director of the Anabaptist Climate Collaborative. Before we begin our episode, a quick plug for one of Creation Justice Ministries' other programs, Blue Theology. Blue Theology is a place where current science and marine biology meets a theology of creation justice. Each summer, we host youth groups to engage in experiential learning, service projects, and contemplative practice with God's marine creation. We have outposts in North Carolina, Newport Beach, California, and Texas City, Texas. Registration is open now. To learn more, go to www.bluetheology.com. Join us now as we look at John chapter 2 through the lens of creation justice. Okay, our passage today, which is for the third week of Lent, comes from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So friends, where is creation in this passage? Well, first, I, I just wanted to thank you for including me in this conversation uh, today, Derek. Um, I, you know, the, the thing that strikes me about creation in this passage um, is that John is making a, a kind of a different point around creation um, than the synoptic gospels are. And um, so absolutely, there's all these animals in the text. <laughs> um, but given the fact that John places this right at the start of the gospel, right after the first sign, that this is actually described as one of the signs of who Jesus is, um, I think for all of the really good work the synoptics do around um, justice questions, around monetizing creation um, and, and the ways in which that has been folded into imperial structures. I mean, that, that whole question about uh, the den of thieves in the, the synoptic gospels. I think John is making this huge point about the incarnation and about the word made flesh. Um, about what it, where we run into God in the world. So I can say more about that, but that's my, that, that's mm. the like voice that I'll bring to the podcast today. And I'll kind of flesh out what I mean by that. But, but Doug, I'm curious what you see, what you, what do you see in this? 
Well, I, I also saw that, I mean, for one thing, just that John spends a little more time on what creatures are are there in the temple, like in, in, the, in the, the synoptics, it's the doves that are, are pigeons that are focused on, and here the cattle and sheep are part of the situation, and they're also uh, those who are they're driven out, although probably for a different reason <laughs> than, right. than the money changers. And, and as you say, that this commodification of, of those creatures is certainly part of what uh, Jesus is talking about. So I was, just, I was partly just intrigued that, that, that he pauses here a bit on, on that. He describes the creatures that are not human a little bit more. And then I also did, you know, thinking about the word made flesh and it's flesh, right? It's not, the word became human, it's okay. flesh. And, and so here, um, the other place where I see that creation is in speaking of the temple of his body and who is the body of Christ. Uh, and, and, and are these, is the wider creation part, part of the body of Christ is going to be uh, answering yes to that question, I guess, is part of what I'll, I'll be doing during this, during this podcast that, that I, that I think it is, uh, yeah, uh, and and so Jerusha, I definitely want you to say more um, because I think there is there was a there was an obvious answer, and I think you you both bypassed the obvious answer, <laughs> um, and I love that you bypassed the obvious answer because I think it's a richer answer. <laughs> so um, if, if we're thinking about creation as um, Yes, there's the commodification that Empire does of these creatures, these non-human creatures. But Jerusha, please say more about the the creation showing up in the incarnation here. Right. Well, well, one way, I mean, which which I think would be a misreading of this story is um, oh, well, animals don't belong in the temple. Um, you, you know, in in when you look at the kind of um you look at the synoptic version of this story, um, it, it does seem to be uh, about kind of a protection of the house of God's purity. So for example, in the synoptics, Jesus says, my house is a house of prayer, quoting Isaiah, and you've turned it into a den of robbers, alluding to Jeremiah, and then makes this separation, turns over the tables, turn, sends out the money changers. And that's a really important word. I mean, absolutely. Um, there's all kinds of ways in which empire can co-opt the house of God. And, and Jesus is sort of um, delineating that in the synoptics. I think something very different is happening here. And one of the clues of that is the scripture that Jesus quotes. So he doesn't quote Isaiah, doesn't quote Jeremiah. Um, he actually alludes to um, Zechariah's description uh, in Zechariah 14 of the day of the Lord. And, and there's this powerful, so first of all, Zechariah 14 is a really terrifying chapter. There's all this destruction, there's all this mayhem, there's plagues and death and all kinds of mess, but you get to the end. And, uh, and Zechariah 14 says this, verses 20 through 21, um, it's describing the day of the Lord. And it says, on that day, there shall be inscribed on the, the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord will be as holy as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. So there's this expansion of holiness, this sort of revelation that the holiness of God actually extends beyond the temple walls. So I really think this is a sign, it, almost like perform, performance art, 
Jesus is almost enacting this sort of the this sort of sign of the day of the Lord, the destruction that will come with this whip. <laughs> but then this revelation that the holiness of God is actually present even beyond these temple walls. It's present through my body, through this, this sort of deep incarnation of my flesh that holds all of creation, right? That the, the holiness of God is actually present outside. So interestingly, when he he, he scatters the money changers, overturns the temples, uh, excuse me, the, the tables. Um, but but it's but it's the, the I think it's interesting. He drives out the sheep and the cattle almost in a sign of of holiness spreading like these mm. these holy, you know, um, <laughs> parts of creation are leaving. And mm -hmm. um, my goodness, what a like reframing of this passage. And and then it makes more sense that this happens at the beginning of John's gospel and not at the end. Because it, in the synoptics, of course, this is one of the reasons Jesus is arrested. He, he right. sort of, that leads to the passion. Um, but in John, it's much more closely aligned. One, two, three, four, who is Jesus? And what are the implications of this word made flesh? And part of it is the day of the Lord is here. I love that. I love that. Um, that is such a that is such a deeper reading of of this um, of this passage and what's happening here uh, that I've encountered, and I think it. But it totally, as you're as you're saying it, it totally fits with the rest of the work that John is doing in in this in the fourth gospel. Mm. It totally fits with the the idea of of. the barrier of the temple um, coming down and, and the glory of God kind of going out into all the world and, and, and doing so through the flesh of Jesus um, in this really important way, which I think is pretty incredible. Um, I'm still, I have to admit, like I'm still processing right? a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, but unexpected that, that the glory, um, that it's not where we expect to find the glory, right? This is the gospel where it's when Jesus is lifted up, right? Mm -hmm. That we see this glory. And, and there's these paradoxes all through John. Um, and I think this is setting up some of that. I think it is. And that is, so I was asking this question to myself about the the sheep and, and the cattle that would have, <laughs> and the doves, they would have all been, used for sacrifices and and so your image of thinking about the holiness spreading out from there i was i was wondering to what extent is jesus critiquing the sacrifice mm -hmm. of these animals i i don't i didn't think so um I, you know I, I more was on the side of it's the commodification i was i was trying to figure out yeah what the what the role of the mar but yeah this image of, of thinking about them going out spreading uh spreading the holiness of god uh they likely will be sacrificed at some point uh for for food if, if nothing else um as jesus is sacrifice i mean sacrifice i mean there's this yeah. there's this mm -hmm. profound mm -hmm. i almost feel like you know that, that first sign in john about the um water turned to wine 
and this sort of way in which that points eschatologically toward a wedding banquet that is on its way. Um, in some ways, like this is a powerful sort of early Christian meditation on eschatology, but it kind of needs deepening. Uh, it, it's very beautiful. Wedding banquet, absolutely lovely, abundance, beautiful. But right next to it, then you have this other picture of the day of the Lord <laughs> and there's cost to it. And there's an unexpected overturning of the world we know. Um, and, and so there's, I, I feel like um, there's something deeply cruciform in the way that this sign is placed right up against that wedding banquet sign. But both of them, I think, are meditations, early Christian meditations on eschatology and what what will new creation look like and what will it require? Well, yeah, so this this um, gets me into a, re a reflection I had, when, it's per especially if you're going to talk about the cruciformity of, of these creatures. Um, I connected this very quickly with the gospel of all creatures, which is a Anabaptist uh, teaching from, from early in our tradition. It was dropped for a while and has come back in the last 30 years. And it, it's... It's a reflection on Mark 16, uh, the, the longer ending of Mark, where Jesus uh, commands the disciples to preach the gospel to all creatures. Mm, and beautiful. in the German, it can be gospel of all creatures as well. So, so that was the way that it, it was often interpreted. And it's also talked about in Colossians 1.23, the gospel uh, that is preached to, to, all, to all creatures. And this um, this sense of, of the the... And partly, and this early Anabaptist was arguing against Martin Luther in a more objective view of the cross, that it's something that happened in, in, at one time and, and is complete. And, and he was he was arguing for more of an appropriation of the crucifixion, arguing for believer's baptism. And as part of that, so sees the gospel, that the creatures actually proclaim the gospel and the sacrifice that they make. Mm -hmm for us, for our food, and, and that the members of Christ uh, include all creatures. It's it's not just not just the church, which the Anabaptist tradition has more focused on that since that time. Um, but it but it's yeah, there's a cruciformity that 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 Christ is present with all creatures and is redeeming all creatures and and, and turning their their suffering in, into resurrected joy. Um, this passage just and the, and the bringing together of the temple of his body that he was raised from the dead and that that, that that's connected here with with these uh temple creatures um, brought beautiful. that to mind for me yeah, yeah. I, yeah you know doug i um i also was thinking of sort of secondary this starts you know it start bubbling up things in my brain and nothing as ecclesially rooted as what you name but but it, it was a piece of poetry that came to me um, and so this, there's a poet by the name of Nicole Brown um, that Chuck Campbell actually turned me on to. And she's most well known for a book that she wrote um, called To Those Who Were Our First Gods, which is a collection of mm. poetry that came out about animals in 2018. Um, and, and the poem that that Chuck likes so much, I want to say this, is this beautiful poem in that collection called Against Despair. And it's a it's a reflection on the death of a kid goat. 
and as a sort of metaphor for the suffering of the world and what hope looks like when it doesn't seem like anything one does makes a difference. And it's, it's a powerful poem. But the, the poems that came up for me in relation to this passage was her next collection called The Donkey Elegies, where she takes the donkey and she does a series of poems that reflect on how this sort of butt of jokes, this, this seeming um, unimportant animal um, that just bears the burdens of humanity is holy. And, and of course, you know, she, she has to come to the story of Palm Sunday, um, which interestingly is another time in John's gospel where Zechariah is quoted. So you have Zechariah mm -hmm. kind of referenced here, and then your king will come riding on a donkey also referenced in, in Palm Sunday. Um, and she gives sort of the setting of Christ coming in um, on this donkey, the weight of it. Um, and I'll just read the very end of this, this sort of reflection. It says, do you see the whites of that white, uh, wild-eyed animal, the sclera lit by such fervor? Do you see how he pains to move through the mob? How easy for those young legs to buckle and slip? How precarious the procession of any chosen donkey? Um, and as she goes on, you're, you begin to see the, the Via Dolorosa. I mean, what you begin to see, um, you know, as, as you described, um, doctrinally so beautifully is this witness in the donkey's body to the suffering of Jesus that is coming. Um, it's, it's a cruciform reading of that sort of triumphal entry, but from the animal's perspective. And um, I, so I just think there's something deep there in this connection between um, flesh and, and Jesus's proclamation that um the temple is now my flesh, right? And um, and what that calls us to. Uh, so less of a delineation between holy and unholy, as in the synoptics, and more an embrace of the holiness, the spreading holiness, the enfleshed holiness of God mm. uh, revealed through Jesus in the world. Mm. I feel like that segues beautifully to the next question, which is where is God calling us to interact with creation? Um, and if, and there's some certain implications in that question, <clears throat> if, if in fact, holiness is enfleshed now. So where is God calling us to interact with creation in this passage? Hmm. Yeah, I do. I do see it as as this engagement that recognizes the the holiness of all creatures and and their being and their subjectivity that they are not objects to be consumed. Mm. Although sometimes they are consumed, but they are beings that we are in relationship with and in and in communion with. Um, and I think the, I mean the other story that I'll tell uh, from. Well, a story I'll tell from my personal life is is my baptismal experience as a as a pastor who baptizes people in the Elkhart River, which sometimes has too much uh, manure in it for safe baptism. One of my one of our practices is we would always then test the water before we baptize people, which included checking on all those 
creatures that live in the river bottom. And there's a whole host of these um, insects that, and a few other worms and different things, snails, but also these insects that spend their adolescence in the river bottom and then fly away in adulthood, which to me is just a marvelous life um, to, to have those two stages of life. And I got to know, especially the caddisfly larva, uh, which, because it builds a little house around itself um, of sticks and, and stones. And I, I think that's why it is the first time I started to realize as, as, I, as I was doing this 20 years ago, that these creatures were, were my neighbors. And eventually to come to realize, well, and these creatures also participate in our baptismal practice and are witnesses to the baptism that goes on. And, um, you know, we, we don't have a strong holy water kind of idea, but, but, but then in a sense, I, but I'm trying to strengthen that and to realize that by baptizing in the Elkhart River, mm -hmm. It, it's it's recognizing the holiness of that place and I, it was one time when i was preaching in toronto that i realized too that 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 some of those creatures and that some of that water was 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 flowing past us on lake ontario because we're all connected in the great lakes um watershed which is a wonderful watershed to be part of i might i might just put in a little shameless plug for us um yeah, the, the, the sense of the, the holiness of all creation, I think, does need to lead. It doesn't have to. It doesn't always happen. But but I think it ought to lead to a, a respect uh, yeah. and a practice of, of how we relate to other creatures where we take account of how our actions affect them. Uh, what when, when we're making decisions about development <clears throat> and planning and, and that kind of stuff and, and thinking about endangered species or loss of habitat. Um, I, th I think we need to take account of, of its effect on, on, on all creation. Um, the, the word that comes to me as I listen to you, Doug, is um, George Zechariah in his article or his chapter in Decolonized Ecology, I think is the book, talks about the thingification of mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. And and what would it mean um, to stop seeing creation as a thing, to see it held, embraced, um, co-witnesses, right? Um, Co-participants in this body that holds us, um, in the body of Jesus. Um, what, what would that mean? Uh, and 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 I think that's the deep that's the deep call of this this passage is uh, your question, Derek was um, um, how do we how does God call us to interact with creation? And I think the first thing this passage does is a reorientation toward relationship. Um, rather than a thingification yeah 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 because i i think you know the thing that that you both have drawn my attention to is that jesus isn't actually against the sacrificial role of the animals here 
that that's part of the relationship. That's part of the relationship that that God has created for humans and creations to human and creation to, to be in. It's the thingification. It's that they become a thing. It's that they become another thing that can be bought and sold. That they can be another thing that that is part of the um, marketplace. Another thing that's part of the economy. You know, mm -hmm. not not God's economy, the economy, right? Mm -hmm. And and when they become part of the economy, the relationship part is broken down. When they're a part of our our connection to to God and to our community, there's the reinforcement of bonds. There's the reinforcement of we belong to creation and creation belongs to us. And we're a part of creation and we're in and amongst creation. But when they become part of this thing that's in the marketplace, particularly in this space, then they're just another off the assembly line kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 more than anything, maybe it's it's being we're being asked to break ourselves out of that creation as something to be bought and sold. Mm -hmm. Creation as something to be mass produced. Creation as something to be to to put a price tag on. Well, I I just wanted to also make sure that I credited Tom Barry it would be the inspiration for my comments around we and who says that we must come to see the world not as a collection of objects but as a communion of subjects. So that mm -hmm. that's been a phrase for me that that's been uh, key thinking about this. And I, I just wanted to add that as you talk about this, I've often thought about the word natural resources, Department of Natural Resources, and the idea of nature as a resource and the thingification that goes with that. But it starts to creep up because personnel directors might be the human resources directors. And so so there's even, I mean, I, I think it, it starts to go up and, and the thingification I mean, uh, slavery is the thingification of other humans, and or, right. or, nat or human resources is the thingification of labor, uh, rather than seeing it as something that's a part of ourselves and, and who we are and, and it comes out of our being. It's, it's separated from us and it's something that can be bought and, and sold. So, mm. uh, yes. Um, the, the thing that came for me, Derek, because I was listening, and, and Doug, you as well, I feel like there's there's two sort of streams that are deeply related in this in this passage. And one has to do, again, which we've been talking about, our, our relationship to creation, the relationality of creation. But there is like this, this corollary um, that is this question of holiness and God's presence. And is holiness and God's presence somehow set apart and segregated and set off from the mundane and from ordinary life? Um, or, or is there permeability? And, mm. and this passage gives such an interesting answer to that because Jesus doesn't just dissolve the particularity of holiness. He does locate it somewhere. He says, located in my body, right? That's, that's, that's where I'm locating it. Um, but because we've already read John 1 about all of flesh, all of flesh being who Jesus is, there is a way in which in that particularity, there is also this 
this sacralization again of the world because Jesus is holding it in his heart, in his actual body, his enfleshed being. Um, and so I feel like there's these two deep theological, one about anthropology, right? The fact that we are connected in relation, what it means to be a creature. And then this deep, deep, beautiful affirmation of God's presence in the world, on the loose, as it were. Yeah. I love that. And, and particularly as, uh, you know, connecting that to the idea of, of these animals running free, which by the way, I've never even really thought about that in this passage that Jesus um, <laughs> releases these animals out into the streets. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of this, it's kind of this chaotic image um, of, of, of these animals that are, are suddenly let loose and, and which also I feel like connects to a lot of John's understanding of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, that there's, there's, there's this is- Doves flying everywhere. It's, it's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's gonna go where it will. And, 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 and uh, good luck trying to predict the next movement here. <laughs> Lovely. But it's, it, it is, and it, it, it's reminding us um, you know, and, and thinking about this, you know, in, in my mind, I'm actually kind of connected to us because last week we were talking about the transfiguration mm. and thinking about the the experience of the holy there that, mm. that the disciples kind of want to bask in and isolate in one place. And, mm. and Jesus saying, no, you know, it's mm. time to go back down the mountain. It's time to go back and find the holy out in the world and i think this is another place of of the holy being released out into the world and being reminded that the holy is out there and that this temple um is only as useful as our 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 ability to perceive the holy in it um and and we need to develop the sensibility to experience the holy um, beyond the walls of this temple, particularly in the context of, of a world where that temple has been destroyed. Mm. Yes. So I think we've, we've, we've tiptoed around a little bit, um, but where is there now a call to action for the church and for us as, as um, people of faith, based off of the things that we've said about where creation is and how we're called to interact with creation. Um, so I'll, I'll just dive in with an, you know, one idea, um, more so than the synoptic gospels, I think, particularly because the connection with sign, John's version of this story is about discernment. It is about discerning the holy in the world and who this Jesus is and, and what this Jesus is calling us to. Part of the reason I, I note that is all of the times in this passage where it talks about the disciples reflecting later, like it, like it happens several times where the disciples are like, and they didn't really get it at the time, but then they were thinking back and they remembered this verse. Uh, you know, this verse, by the way, zeal for your father's house or zeal for your house will consume me is in that same psalm that talks about gall and vinegar. 
given. I mean, it's it's the psalm that is actually the psalm that so often is our reference point for Jesus on the cross. And so here they are reflecting on this psalm and, and, and Jesus's words. And all of a sudden, this sign makes sense. And, and what seemed impossible when Jesus said it, the destruction and the raising, all of a sudden you have eyes to see. And, and so I, I feel like on top of everything else, this passage is about what does it mean as a church to discern the signs of the times that we're in, um, to discern the destructions that are happening now, and, and to recognize the holiness at work in the world and respond. Um, that that's, it doesn't sound like particularly like active. I know we're like, we're to the takeaway part of the podcast, <laughs> but, but I think part of what John is telling us in this passage, and certainly this is work for Lent, is that we've lost the ability to see the, the, the depth of the destruction and, and even perhaps the, the, the craziness of the hope, right? That, that, I mean, Jesus says this thing at the end, I will be raised in three days. And we say, how is this possible? It can't be possible. And what, and, and what would it, what kind of uh, redefinition of the world would we have to lean into a, a relearning of what hope looks like, a, a relearning of a hope that goes through Good Friday um, rather than evades it? I mean, I feel like that's really where this this passage is pressing the church mm-hmm. in relation to ecology. To be very to be concrete, you know, I I think we're we're to a point where um, <laughs> small fixes are are not are not going to save the world that we love and know, and and there is a different. There's a fundamental paradigm shift that we are going through as a church to begin to really recognize what does it mean to say that God holds this world in God's hands. And and listeners at home can't see me, but I'm holding up my hands actually in my flesh, in my body. What does that mean? Um, and, And I think those are the deep questions that John 2 presses us to. Your your question brings me to to what is the what is the main action in this passage, and we haven't talked about this yet. So this this is mm. the fact that Jesus makes a whip of cords and drove mm. them out of the temple, mm. and that's something that I've also been reflecting on as a committed pacifist. And, and my tradition and my own pacifism is based on it being rooted in the life and practice and teachings mm. of Jesus. So what does it mean if Jesus, this is one of the passages that is sometimes used in saying that Jesus wasn't committed to pacifism. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I, I think about how it is a, it is a very active <laughs> engagement. I mean, that's, it's a disturbance. It's, it's a, it's like, it is, it's rowdy in a way. It, I don't, I don't think of it as violent in the sense of, um, it, it, it doesn't appear to be that people were injured or, or that kind of, we, we don't know for sure. I mean, it doesn't tell us otherwise, um, but it, it shows Jesus 
engaging in an act of what we might call nonviolent resistance. And, and, and I think about that in terms of the church's call to point out what we're doing to the earth and the ways that we are destroying the planet and, and, but to demonstrate, not just to talk about, or not just to, not just to say it, but to demonstrate it in our bodies that, that this, this ought not to, ought not to continue. You know, um, thank you for bringing up the whip because it's a hard, it's hard for me too. Um, I keep playing with this idea of the interplay between this passage and Zechariah 14, which also reveals a God that is, um, yeah, well, there's all kinds of devastation and destruction. It's a hard passage, right? <laughs> it's not an easy one. Um, but one of the things that strikes me about that passage is the scourge in that passage in Zechariah 14 is meant to reveal the connection of the world and the holiness of creation. Like there's something about the grief that 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 the day of the Lord describes in Zechariah 14 that is meant to open our eyes to the to to break this thingification that says actually you are far more connected than you think. Um and I when I look at Jesus with that whip um, in the temple, there, there's a similar kind of threshing and, and a, a kind of, um, we are more connected than you think. And, um, you know, and, and, and my reading of that is, is, um, is so, you know, again, because of its placement in John, you know, I lean into the discernment of that as a sign. But Doug, I think you're really right to push us to, are there ways that we are called into prophetic sign acts? Are there ways that we are called into a kind of uncovering of um, the connectedness of suffering and holiness, the bound, the braided together quality of those things in the world, um, born together because we are part of a body? Um, so I'm really grateful for that insight. Thank you. Couple, couple thoughts come to mind. I, I've one. I, I think there is there's something about the disciples' response here that makes you think this is what happens when you see your very mellow friend totally freak out and you're like oh wow this is something we haven't seen before of of this person you know we've mostly just seen him kind of walking and talking and turning water into wine we haven't actually seen him like this is what he looks like when he's angry we haven't seen this before and i wonder like i feel like the world hasn't seen the church righteously angry um doesn't see the church righteously angry you know they see us angry about really dumb things in sort of culture war kind of ways 
but they don't see us angry about injustice. They don't see us angry about the devastation of our ecology. They don't see us angry about these things that really matter. And maybe there's a call here to the expressions of that kind of righteous anger. The other thing that comes to my mind is, you know, thinking about the fact that, Drusha, as you've pointed out several times, that in the synoptic gospels, this happens at the end. This is kind of the last straw, and we're 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 done with this Jesus. And at the in John's gospel, it happens at the beginning. And there's almost this question of, did he do this every Passover? Mm. <laughs> 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 it was like, <laughs> did they get to the point where they're like, oh, here, here we go again. <laughs> we're we're going to have to go through this thing. We're going to get kicked out of the temple again. But, but I, I, you know, but again, I, I, I bring that up, one, because it's a, it's a funny image for me, but also because I, 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 I also kind of love the image of Jesus doing this every Passover, you know, for, mm -hmm. for the course of his ministry of like the consistency of, yeah, you know, I'm I'm going to disrupt this thing again because it needs to be disrupted. And like the fact that sometimes we show up for a thing once, we protest a thing once, mm. we boycott a thing mm. once, wow. and the need to come back, wow. the need to be to to bring that same energy wow. over and over and over again. And in that I hear a call to action for the church to 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 show up with this energy over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, and and this is just a quip, but I I, I imagine the temple authorities and Roman officials and having to come up with their Jesus plan. <laughs> like, what are you going to do about Jesus? <laughs> that guy shows up again. Yeah. Is there yeah. a poster or something? <laughs> right. Um. So the like uh, Chuck's favorite line in that poem I mentioned um, against despair, the kid goat um, is, is after that the goat is dead after they try to keep the goat alive all night and the goat dies. Um, interestingly, the goat is described as having a whip-like body. That struck me just because of the passage mm. we're reading. Yeah. Um, but but the final word is is hope is not a thing you feel but something you do. And part of the, the goal of that poem is, is to say that it matters, action matters, even when it looks like it doesn't, even when the goat is now dead on your floor, um, the feeding of a beast um, matters. And, and, and so the consistency of that, and I don't think you sustain that kind of consistency because there's a way in which even that sort of um, intervention can become thingified, like like or or the the result becomes thingified. I'm going to do this to get this effect, right? And 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 it can it can again it oddly can remove the relationality too, so that so that to have this sense of I show up because this is worth doing, this is worth saying about who the, like what the world is, who I am, who the God I worship is. Like it's worth saying today, it's worth saying tomorrow, it's worth saying next season, like regardless. And, and I think that's 
that's that's profound yeah thank you yeah well thank you both this has been such a such a profound conversation i i i absolutely appreciate your insights on this and um gosh i mean i have i've always i think i've always found so much inspiration in this text but i feel like i'm looking at it and through completely new eyes so jerusha doug thank you so much for for being with us today and for all of your um wisdom and and um, reflection on on this passage thank, thank you, you Thank you for joining us for the Green Lectionary Podcast. This episode was produced by Derek Weston, and the music was provided by Christian McIver. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word with a good review. Leave us a comment to let us know how you've used the show and how we can make it more useful for your ministry. You can learn more about this and other programs of Creation Justice Ministries at creationjustice.org. story comes alive within these pages for every time and place throughout the ages god speaks and is heard and the enduring word calls us to care for our world as we share the love that can set creation free Restoring the earth to wholeness, peace, and harmony. Let the songs of the water, land, and sky resound. Cause together we're all bound. Within these pages, there's always new life to be found.